0: Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision-makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week our guest is Dimitri Simes, president and CEO of the Center for the National Interest and publisher of its foreign policy magazine, The National Interest. Dmitry is also one of the top American experts on Russia. He was selected to lead the center by former President Richard Nixon, to whom he served as an informal policy advisor and with whom he traveled to Russia and other former Soviet states, as well as Western and Central Europe. Mr. Symes was born in Moscow, where he graduated from Moscow State University and studied and worked at the Institute of the World Economy and International Relations. My conversation with Dmitry Sines about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what it means for the Middle East begins now. Dimitri, welcome to On the Middle East. Pleased to have you join our podcast today to talk about Russia, Ukraine, and the Middle East.
1: Andrew, thank you for having me.
0: You know Russia as well as anyone. You've interacted with Putin. He seems undeterred by the financial and now energy sanctions on Russia. What is your expectation for his end game in Ukraine, politically and militarily?
1: Well, I think uh, a fundamental question is, what does it mean for Putin to be undeterred? We do not know uh, what his original plans were, how far he intended to go. Uh, Today, uh, uh, he and his associates are saying that they're not planning to occupy uh, the whole Ukrainian territory. Uh, They're saying that they would not attempt uh, to conduct any elections or uh, to put themselves in charge of Ukrainian governance. I do not know whether they would have such ambitions if the military campaign was going better. At this point, uh, they clearly uh, understand that something went very wrong. They did not expect this level of Western unity. They did not anticipate that uh, that severity of uh, Western sanctions. And uh, probably most of all, uh, they uh, did not uh, expect that the Ukrainian resistance, military resistance, would be so stiff. They uh, were under the impression that uh, most Ukrainians, according to public opinion polls, do not quite like President Zelensky. Uh, They thought uh, that uh, at least uh, in Eastern Ukraine, the Russians would be met as liberators, uh, sometimes with flowers, uh, in most cases, at least with uh, some level of uh, acceptance. And that uh, clearly did not happen. Uh, and uh, uh, the Russian uh, military is still moving, moving forward in Ukraine, but very, very slowly. They still don't have control over the air. And there was one a fundamental miscalculation. Uh, somehow they persuaded themselves that time was working in their favor, but the time is working against them. It is work, working against them because uh, of uh, a massive Western military assistance uh, to uh, uh, the Ukrainian military, including thousands and thousands of anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, uh, a lot of other uh, uh, little weapons. Uh, And as the Ukrainian army is getting all these weapons, uh, it is obviously becoming uh, more capable uh, to offer uh, serious resistance uh, to the Russian army. And uh, on the Russian side, there are heavy losses in their moral problems. So I do think that Putin is probably deterred from doing some of the most ambitious things he was contemplating, like full control of the whole U- Ukraine. Uh, but uh, uh, at the same time, uh, I, I think it would be uh, very uh, damaging to him politically, including in Russia. If he now decided to retreat, uh, he he would need some kind of solution which would allow him to claim victory or at least uh, an appearance of victory. And uh, so far, he did not hear uh, anything from the West or for that matter from the Zelensky government uh, that would uh, allow Putin to say Well, uh, we did what we needed to do. Uh, We got what was required, and now we can go home. She clearly is not at that point yet.
0: The diplomatic track to end the conflict pretty much seems relegated to others, at least from a Washington perspective, because the Biden administration has not been directly involved, or at least according to the reports we're seeing. So the gap has been filled mostly by French President Macron but also by Israeli Prime Minister Bennett and Turkish President Erdogan as the Turkish foreign minister hosted a meeting of his Russian and Ukrainian counterparts today. How does Putin see these diplomatic initiatives by others and the absence of direct diplomacy from Washington? Do you think these initiatives have much of a chance? And if so, what would be the bottom line or the nature of a deal if there was to be one to put together at this point?
1: Well, let's start with President Macron. Uh, uh, President Macron uh, tried to position himself uh, as almost a friend of Putin, uh, as a person who was somewhat independent uh, from the United States in terms of his approaches to Russia, uh, and uh, that uh, uh, he was indicating to Putin uh, that he would be willing to take Russian interests into account, including Russian uh, desire not to allow NATO to move further east. But uh, as uh, uh, France uh, joins the United States in very severe sanctions, as uh, the French minister of finance uh, is talking about uh, an economic war against Russia, uh, as uh, France is arresting uh, Uh, Russian ships, uh, which are not even in uh, French territorial waters, uh, uh, you you have to assume that Macron does not have great credibility with Putin. It certainly is not viewed as a particular friend of Russia. Uh, The question in Moscow is to what extent he is also talking for the United States. And they believe that it is the United States that is the main actor in this conflict, at least on the Western side. And it is only the United States uh, that can really tell President Zelensky what to do. So uh, Putin is talking to Macron. I know that the, uh, some of his advisors were saying that he should not even be taking Macron's phone calls uh, when uh, France is trying to punish Russia so severely. Uh, but uh, uh, Putin is... Uh, very practical in situations like that. He is a very proud man, but uh, uh, he doesn't like to show uh, that he is offended, that he is emotional about something. But I do repeat, Macron's uh, credibility with Putin is limited, both in terms of Macron uh, having positive feelings toward Russia, and in terms of Macron having a real influence over President Zelensky. So as Erdogan is concerned, clearly uh, Turkey is uh, very important to Russia in many other respects. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, Turkey is not quite Russia's friend. They have very uh, tense relationship uh, in Syria, uh, very difficult situation in Libya, uh, where Russia and Turkey are on different sides. And obviously Russia does not appreciate uh, that, uh, Turkey is supplying Ukraine with offensive weapons, uh, uh, including rather effective uh, uh, Turkish military drones. And then uh, Prime Minister Bennett, uh, well, uh, Bennett uh, clearly is an important player because uh, there is a perception uh, uh, in uh, Moscow uh, that uh, they were trying to provide Israel with a relatively free hand in Syria uh, in the whole region that they were sensitive to uh, Israeli consensus over Iranian nuclear program and they hoped uh, that Israel as it became Israeli practice recently would not join the United States uh, in any denunciations of Russia and particularly any sanctions against Russia. Uh, but Bennett decided under pressure uh, from the United States, the European Union uh, really to take sides, uh, in the Russian-Ukrainian uh, conflict. And uh, it is on the side of uh, Kiev, not on the side of Moscow. He may be an interesting interlocutor. I'm sure that Putin would be interested to get uh, Bennett's evaluation of the situation, but I don't see any particular uh, leverage uh, Bennett having on Putin. And Putin assumes that there are a lot of uh, uh, people, Jews uh, who left uh, 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 Russia now live in Israel, uh, but still have uh, sentimental feelings about Russia. And uh, they kind of assume that for his domestic reasons, uh, uh, Israel probably would not want to be too harsh on Russia. So all these interlocutors are interesting. They can talk to Russia. Uh, They can try to find uh, uh, some uh, common approaches, but they all have limited influence. They have a limited influence in Moscow. They have a limited influence in Washington, and they don't have great influence in Kiev.
0: Dmitry, these sanctions uh, we're talking about seem devastating to Putin. You you mentioned his miscalculation about the extent of the sanctions uh, that has hit Russia since he invaded Ukraine. They are also hitting uh, the oligarchs who have supported Putin in the past, and, of course, the Russian people. Can Putin himself survived the sanctions and what are the prospects for regime change in russia is there a constituency in the military among the oligarchs through mass protests that could push him aside and more broadly what are some of the scenarios if something like this started to happen for destabilization in russia
1: well uh, let's deal with some facts first uh, Putin's popularity, as a result of the war in Ukraine, went up rather than down, and that's not because uh, that's not because of great uh, Russian military successes, because so far those military successes were few and far between. Uh, but the problem is different. Uh, even people who question Putin's uh, decision to invade Ukraine, question for both moral and practical reasons. Uh, these people, when they are confronted with crippling sanctions, uh, as um, many politicians in Washington say, sanctions uh, from hell, uh, sanctions which do not make uh, a real distinction uh, between Russian officials Uh, Putin's uh, supporters and ordinary Russians, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, they uh, begin to feel uh, very patriotic. And uh, 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 Putin is becoming the symbol of Russia standing up tall against the whole collective West. Now, uh, that is uh, uh, as far as the situation looks today. Uh, But uh, clearly, as the sanctions really uh, start doing damage. Uh, If uh, people do not get their salaries, everybody is still getting their salary in Russia. Uh, If uh, pensions are no longer paid, or at least uh, are not uh, uh, delivered on time. Uh, uh, If people uh, discover uh, that uh, a couple of Russian planes uh, 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 have crashes, because they don't have uh, uh, reliable uh, spare parts, Uh, I think that uh, uh, people may start feeling uh, differently. Uh, And uh, uh, it's very difficult for Putin to retreat under the current circumstances uh, because uh, he made uh, his whole career by looking like uh, a symbol of Russian greatness, uh, like uh, a strong man who knew uh, how to confront anyone and was afraid of nothing. So if uh, he would be greatly diminished in stature, I think it would make him vulnerable, but it would make him even more vulnerable if the whole economy would begin uh, to disintegrate. Putin's principal uh, constituency uh, are not liberal intellectuals, uh, not uh, uh, high tech uh, people, uh, are not uh, successful investors. Uh, These are so called budgetniki, uh, people who get their money from uh, the state budget, Uh, retired people, uh, millions and millions of people uh, working for the government, uh, people who work uh, in state controlled companies. This was Putin's most reliable constituency so far. But these are also the people who are least protected to deal with economic uh, hardships which may be caused by a collapsing economy. So I uh, I would say that Putin today uh, is more popular and looks uh, almost stronger than ever, Uh, but uh, 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 his support is uh, wide, but also thin. You can see that not uh, uh, too many Russian soldiers are enthusiastic about dying for Putin and Ukraine. So if I would be Putin, uh, I would be thinking uh, very seriously about how to find a solution from uh, the situation he found himself in in Ukraine, uh, but uh, to find a solution which uh, uh, would not create an impression that he was defeated or diminished.
0: Dmitry, how concerned are you about miscalculation and escalation? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking here about Russia. It has, I think, the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Russia also has a formidable cyber capability. Of course, the U.S. and NATO have been very careful to draw their own red lines. You saw that the U.S. Uh, nixed sending um, planes to, uh, Polish planes to Ukraine. How worried are you that things could escalate?
1: Uh, Andrea, I'm quite worried. Uh, and I am uh, worried about miscalculations and misperceptions on both sides. We already talked about uh, uh, Putin's uh, miscalculations, but look at Western miscalculations. For decades, uh, uh, Russian specialists, experienced diplomats, uh, 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 senior officials uh, were predicting uh, that uh, NATO expansion to the East, particularly Attempts to bring Ukraine into NATO would not only encounter stiff Russian resistance, but could affect uh, Russian fundamental attitude to the West. Uh, George Cannon was talking about that back in the 90s, and he was very concerned that, uh, the, the, that NATO expansion could uh, put Russia on the wrong course and affect not only uh, more anti Western policy. Uh, but also would give more power to the military security services and make Russia uh, less democratic and more anti-Western. Uh, a person who always was considered a hawk, uh, Robert Gates, uh, who was Director, Secretary of Defense under both Republicans and Democrats, uh, was talking about NATO overreaching uh, and uh, uh, the danger of bringing NATO literally uh, to the suburbs of uh, uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, and uh, all of these warnings were totally ignored. Whenever Russia would uh, express consent, uh, 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 the conventional wisdom uh, in Washington would say, Oh, come on, they cannot be here. NATO is strictly a defensive alliance. Uh, How a small country uh, like, uh, let's say, Estonia be a threat to Russia? And the answer was that first, No, NATO is not uh, strictly a defensive alliance. Uh, Just ask the Serbs, Uh, just uh, ask the Iraqis, Uh, just ask the Libyans. Uh, NATO was uh, involved in many offensive operations, uh, either uh, as an alliance as a whole, uh, as uh, in in, in the case of uh, Serbia, or uh, leading uh, NATO members like the United States, uh, Britain and France uh, during Uh, certain expeditions uh, uh, in the Middle East. So in the the Russian view, uh, uh, NATO is not an offensive alliance. Uh, Reasonable people may disagree about that, but they should not reject the obvious. Russia does not believe that NATO is an offensive alliance. Now, and how uh, Russia could view seriously uh, as a threat (coughs) its small neighbors. Well, the answer is that from the very beginning, when there was uh, an expectation of NATO enlargement, there were two schools of thought uh, in terms of how this enlargement would uh, affect the basic uh, character uh, of the alliance. And the Russians were saying uh, this uh, small and sometimes like in the case of Poland, not so small countries, They have a lot of grievances against Russia. They uh, want to be in the alliance because they're afraid uh, of Russia. And moreover, they have animosity toward Russia. And if they would be protected by uh, NATO Article 5, they would want uh, to use uh, NATO Article 5 nuclear umbrella uh, to protect themselves against Russian retaliation and uh, to have uh, a more... uh, Uh, assertive policy vis-a-vis Russia. Uh, And uh, the Russians were saying uh, that uh, because these uh, East European countries feel stronger about Russia uh, than uh, uh, traditional Europeans, uh, that the small countries, uh, as uh, they become more and more uh, integrated into the alliance, they would become more and more influential in shaping alliances policy toward Russia which would be increasingly hostile. Uh, uh, the alternative school of thought, the one articulated by uh, Washington and Brussels, uh, was that the opposite was true. Uh, that bringing these uh, 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 former Soviet satellites into NATO uh, would give them greater sense of security, uh, more self-confidence, and they would become, if you wish, a bridge between Russia uh, and uh, Western and Central Europe. Well, it's very clear uh, that the Russian point of view, the Russian expectation that East Europeans would try to push Russia in a more hostile direction vis a vis Moscow, that is that school uh, that was proven to be right. So uh, uh, for, for Russia, uh, uh, bringing Ukraine in, into NATO is considered an existential issue. Uh, You uh, I'm sure, uh, uh, aware of uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's evolution on this issue. He, for many years, of course, dreamed of independent Poland. He felt very strongly that Ukraine should be independent from Russia. And he was saying that if uh, Ukraine would be truly independent from Russia, Russia could not become again an empire. But particularly in his last years, Brzezinski began speaking, uh, I would say quite powerfully, against bringing Ukraine into NATO, saying that this was a breach too far, that because Russia viewed Ukraine and NATO as an existential threat, uh, you could not have European stability. And if you wish, you could not have uh, uh, European uh, and Ukrainian security if Ukraine would be determined to get into NATO and if NATO would create an impression that Ukraine is going to be uh, in NATO. And uh, uh, these warnings uh, were uh, uh, in my view uh, quite clear and and quite persuasive, Uh, but uh, they all were ignored. And I have a very simple question. In what uh, uh, respect uh, uh, NATO today Uh, can feel triumphant uh, looking at what is happening in Ukraine and around Ukraine. Surely, Russia is suffering. Surely, Russia is being uh, punished. Surely, Putin was put in a very difficult position. But don't we care about what is happening to Ukraine? Uh, uh, Aren't we bothered that by trying to give Ukraine uh, an opportunity to enter NATO, that nobody was actually inviting Ukraine into NATO. We have contributed to a a, a situation when uh, Ukraine uh, is really in in a catastrophic situation and being bloodied and tortured. And now we can say that this is all Putin's responsibility, but uh, uh, Putin's responsibility does not mean that we are entitled not to care uh, about making sound decisions ourselves. And in terms of escalation, This is an existential uh, uh, challenge to Russia as far as the Russian are concerned. And uh, I think that uh, uh, Putin was very clear about uh, his red lines. Uh, He has uh, military tools uh, uh, to to deal with escalation and even to have uh, escalation dominance in some respects in Eastern Europe. Putin cannot sustain uh, a long war uh, uh, against the whole of Western alliance. Uh, but uh, uh, if, if it is a kind of a short-term situation, he can do a lot of things. And uh, I, I, I would not want to compete with Putin in terms of uh, ruthlessness and uh, uh, readiness to do whatever to prevail. I think it's a dangerous situation. And that's why I think it is uh, very much in our uh, interest to look for a genuine diplomatic solution, and not just uh, to sit and hope that we will bloody and punish Putin, and hopefully he will be removed. If he would not be removed, uh, Russia would be greatly damaged. Uh, I think that trying to greatly damage a nuclear power uh, in the country of uh, uh, Russian size uh, and Russian pride I think it's, it's a kind of a, a reckless approach and they hope we will get to a serious diplomatic business without too much delay.
0: Dimitri, let's talk about Syria for just a minute. And I wanna ask the question two ways. First, how did the Russian military experience in Syria influence Russia in terms of its campaign in Ukraine, if it did? And secondly, What changes do you expect, if any, regarding Russia's policy in Syria?
1: Uh, I think that the Russians basically uh, feel uh, that they were successful in Syria and certainly was not an unqualified success. And uh, uh, they had to coexist uh, with American forces uh, in Syria. Uh, They certainly have uh, a difficult relationship and uh, have. uh, to control themselves uh, in their uh, the very complex uh, relationship with Turkey. And in the case of Israel, so far they were treating Israel and Syria with kid gloves and were allowing uh, uh, the Israelis a great uh, freedom of operation. Uh, I think uh, that uh, uh, Russian, uh, what I would call Uh, limited successes in Syria perhaps uh, gave them an excessive self-confidence and uh, an unjustified uh, feeling that uh, they would be able to prevail uh, in uh, Ukraine uh, or with, uh, if, if you wish, limited damage to their military power and uh, to their treasure. Uh, a lot depends upon how that uh, uh, conflict in Ukraine ends for Putin. If Putin is able to get peace with honor uh, and uh, end the situation uh, with uh, a recognized uh, control of Crimea, uh, with an enlarged uh, territory of Donetsk and Lugansk uh, so-called uh, republics, uh, where they would uh, go, and they're already very close uh, to getting to administrative borders of Donetsk and Lugansk provinces. Uh, and if Ukraine would uh, kind of make a commitment uh, not uh, to try to reverse this situation uh, uh, militarily, and if Ukraine would make some kind of meaningful commitment not to go into NATO anytime soon, and if this commitment would be confirmed uh, by the alliance, I think uh, uh, many people in Russia, both ordinary people uh, and the elite, they would uh, have a sense of uh, uh, relief. But that's only true uh, if uh, in addition to this limited arrangement in Ukraine, uh, there would be uh, uh, a reversal of sanctions, which are hitting Russia very, very hard. And uh, uh, in the past, uh, Russian diplomacy, uh, I think they were quite unique in refusing to, dis- to raise sanctions against them whenever they were negotiating with the West. Uh, I talked about that to Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, and asked him uh, why in contrast with, let's say, uh, uh, the Iranians or the Koreans, Uh, Why wouldn't you raise the sanctions issue? It's an important issue for you. Uh, And he said to me, well, uh, it's uh, uh, almost offensive to us to be put in the same category uh, as uh, Iran and North Korea. We're a great power. We also consider ourselves a democracy. We do not believe that the sanctions against us are legitimate. Uh, We uh, had nothing to do Uh, with uh, uh, introducing the sanctions. We don't believe that we have done uh, anything that would justify the sanctions. The sanctions are in nobody's interest and uh, uh, the West should come back to its senses and just start removing sanctions uh, on its own. Well, you know, it it, it never happened. And the question is, uh, would uh, uh, Putin continue uh, this tradition of not demanding sanction relief Hoping against hope that uh, the sanctions gradually would disappear uh, somewhere somehow, or would he insist on the sanction removal? And his ability to insist on the sanction removal, to a large extent, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is going to depend upon the situation on the battlefield. If it will look like Russians are uh, uh, victorious and are uh, uh, about uh, to reach Ukrainian borders, uh, I'm sure that there would be a strong sense in Europe that uh, we need uh, to, to, to put an end to it as quickly as possible, that no price is too high as long as the Ukrainian basic independence is preserved. Uh, but uh, obviously, so far, such a success was eluding Russia.
0: Dmitry, many of us thought just last week that the Iran nuclear agreement was pretty much a done deal, and then Russia on Saturday, last Saturday, insisted on a a carve-out. What happens next? We saw that the Iranian negotiator returned to Vienna, and Iran has seemed to take a tougher line in what's supposed to be the final hours of uh, the Vienna talks. Help us understand... Russia's position in the context of its relationship with Iran, and is Russia ready to blow up the JCPOA negotiations?
1: Well, first of all, uh, uh, getting uh, sanctions relief uh, for Russia itself is certainly uh, a greater priority for Moscow uh, than uh, uh, going back to the Iranian nuclear deal. Uh, and uh, uh, you are absolutely right, that the Russian position, uh, Russian demand uh, that uh, uh, they uh, would uh, get full benefits uh, of this new arrangement, which they were promised together with others before the Ukrainian war. Uh, I I think that the the Russian position certainly emboldens the uh, Iranian government. Uh, Having said that, uh, uh, however, uh, Russia may uh, demand whatever it wants, uh, but if Iran would decide to go along, it would be very difficult uh, for uh, Russia uh, to say no. And uh, if it attempts to say no, it would only demonstrate Russian isolation, and if you wish, irrelevance, Uh, not only vis-a-vis the West, but even uh, in the case of countries like iran i think uh, the principal driving force in this situation is tehran not moscow
0: Dimitri, last question we haven't talked about china what does russia expect from china at this point and how has the west and has the western response to russia given china Pause in terms of maybe its ambitions in uh, Taiwan uh, and also maybe regarding its partnership with Russia?
1: Well, I think one reason uh, the United States has an important interest in getting a diplomatic solution uh, uh, because uh, uh, only a diplomatic uh, solution uh, would uh, preclude uh, Russia. Uh, becoming Chinese uh, junior partner. More and more people in the Russian uh, national security establishment understand the limits of Chinese commitment to Russia. Uh, They can see today that China uh, would not even uh, vote with Russia at the UN Security Council General Assembly when uh, resolutions denouncing Russia would be offered resolutions in in connection with Ukraine. Uh, the best China would do for for Russia uh, is to be neutral. And uh, uh, that's obviously uh, uh, a kind of uh, in contrast with Western unity in demanding to denounce and to penalize Russia. Uh, We do get reports that uh, uh, Chinese banks are uh, kind of hesitant to become full partners of Russian banks and to offer them a helping hand when they are under sanctions because they don't want uh, to be subjected to American secondary sanctions. It was just uh, announced in Moscow, that China has uh, refused uh, to uh, supply Russia uh, with uh, uh, spare parts uh, for Western planes flying in Russia. And of course, uh, these uh, planes are under sanctions and Russia uh, is not supposed to get any spare parts in service. And uh, there was a hope in Moscow that the Chinese here would offer a helping hand. Uh, That uh, did not happen. But uh, at the same time, China views Russia as an important strategic asset. Uh, uh, Statements uh, in Washington uh, that the United States is not just challenging China and Russia because uh, they are a uh, kind of uh, uh, hostile to uh, American global interests, but also because it's American mission to challenge authoritarian regimes to give it an ideological dimension. Uh, that pushes China and Russia closer together. And uh, the Russians uh, uh, had the hope uh, that their affiliation with uh, China uh, would be uh, uh, on one hand very strong and very substantive, Uh, but on the other hand, that it would be done with uh, uh, full respect for Russian interests and dignity. If Russia is indeed defeated uh, in Ukraine, uh, it it, it may become beyond consents of dignity or even less than central interests for Putin. Uh, And if uh, China could almost automatically rely on Russian support against the United States and more generally against the collective West, I don't think it would be uh, uh, good for U.S. interests or for international stability.
0: Dimitri, this has been great. Thank you for joining us today on on the Middle East. Really enjoyed this conversation with you.
1: Thank you very much. Enjoy talking to you.
0: We will return after this short break. I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you like this podcast and care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's other audio series: On the Middle East with Andrew Parasilevi and Ambrin Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest, Dimitri Simes, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabel Hine of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. First, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, whose guest this month is Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Reza, CEO of Rappler, the digital media website. And On Israel with Ben Caspit, where Ben this week speaks with Israel's most prominent high-tech entrepreneur, former Knesset member Errol Margulik, about Israel's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where I will be here next week with another decision-maker or thought leader from the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com.